Okay, good morning, Paul. Um, we're in the middle of going through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and when we thought about Corinth, uh, important to remember that Corinth was a dazzling modern Greco-Roman city. It was something like Chicago in that it was a vital link between the East and the West. In contrast to the poverty of the surrounding countryside, the inhabitants of Corinth, some of which were wealthy and they had no presumptions about flaunting it. Somebody wrote, Corinth seems to have been a city designed for those who were preoccupied with the marks of social status. So in Corinth, schmoozing, managing or massaging a superior's ego, rubbing shoulders with the powerful, pulling strings, scratching each other's backs, dragging rivals' names through the mud, all describe what was required to attain success in this society. And the problem is was not that the church was in Corinth, but the problem was that too much of Corinth was in the church, power manifesting itself in ruthlessness and self-advancement had found its way into the church. For many, the Christian community had become another place to compete for status. And most, if not all, of the problems that Paul addresses were hatched from the influence of this setting. We're going to find that as we come to chapter 11 in the middle. We read, Paul writes, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Paul refers to is the his code of preaching without cost to his hearers. He knew he had the right to be supported, but he refused to exercise that right. What he would do, he would accept travel expenses from the people he was ministering to in order to go to another city. So in that sense, then, he would accept their partnership with him in extending the gospel to another locale. But while he was in a city, he would not accept support from individuals while he was in that city. If he ran out of what he needed, he would rely upon tent making to support himself. And this was difficult for the Corinthians to accept. They considered it culturally demeaning and embarrassing for him to work um, Among the philosophers and teachers, if you were a reputable teacher, 
religious or otherwise, or a philosopher, the way that you made your living indicated your um, how good you were at what you did. The need to work physical labor for a teacher to provide for life's necessities was considered the least acceptable way that somebody would do that. And the problem was that his tent making reflected badly on them. So they would say, oh, okay, so who is your teacher? Well, Paul. And what does he do? Well, he's a really good teacher. That's not the Paul that's making tents. Uh, yeah, that is the Paul that's making, oh, hmm, that's kind of interesting. Okay, so this reputable apostle, he makes tents. Hmm, that's very interesting. Um, and this created a, this created an issue, but Paul wouldn't back down. He said, I will not budge. What was his rationale? We don't know for sure. One thing we do know is that when you were a benefactor in that culture, and if you gave money to something, it was a way to attract honor to yourself. So you would give in order to make a name for yourself. And if you accepted a gift, it kind of made you, um, it, it, it obligated you to your benefactor. Um, you would become inferior to the one who gave the money when you accepted it. And if Paul accepted the Corinthians gifts, he would be expected to return the favor by heaping praise on them. And, and whatever the reason, Paul found that this type of tete-a-tete would be, uh, would get in the way of the gospel. Whatever Paul did, if it contributed to his ability to get the message across, he would do it. If it inhibited the ability of him to get the message across, he didn't do it. And there was something about accepting funds once in a city that he said, mm, I'm not going to do that. At any rate, after defending his refusal to accept payment, Paul goes on the offensive. He goes on the attack. What he says in verse 12, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Not too hard to see that Paul goes on the attack. And as we have indicated, the reason why he does so, these teachers are dragging his name through the mud and they are calling his credentials and his ability to reflect God into question. Paul defends himself in order to defend the gospel. It's interesting. God could have revealed the gospel in an unembodied way. 
by angels proclaiming from the heavens, but he didn't do so. God entrusted, and I would say still entrusts, the message to individuals who understand the message from someone and pass it on. That certainly was the way it was with Paul. What he does, though, there are those who speak for God, and there are those who claim to speak for God, but do not do so. And that's why Paul describes these individuals who are challenging him. He calls them false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. He proclaims that his detractors claim to speak for God, but do not do so. Surfaces a question. How do you know who speaks for God and who doesn't? What are the characters or the characteristics of someone who speaks for God? How could you tell? There are those who claim to do so. In this, in this case, they claim to speak for God, and Paul says they don't. And he calls attention to two things. In order to determine at that time, or I'd say even in this, um, look at their manner and their message. How could you tell who speaks for God and who doesn't? Observe their manner and listen to their message. First, observe their manner. What Paul writes here is that he needs to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. He's looking at their manner and their arrogant and boastful. They call attention to themselves. They elevate themselves. You're so fortunate that we are speaking to you. I remember I was, um, in a church it was a long time ago. I, I went to this church when I was in the Boston area and I didn't know that many churches. So I was, I was there and it was a long time ago. Anyways, I went to this church and, and I remember, um, at the time the individual, there was an interim minister there and he said, and I remember he said, I want you to understand the awesome weight of the responsibility I have to speak on God's behalf this morning. And they said, in fact, what I'd like you to do, I'd like everyone to get down on their knees and pray that God would speak his message through me. And I remember thinking, that's arrogant. He was elevating himself above. And so even while we were there, I'll never forget that. And the message wasn't even all that hot. I don't know what that's about. Um, it's interesting that those who speak for God observe their manner. They do not elevate themselves above you. What Jesus said in Mark 10, you know, that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And it says, this is Mark 10, 42, 43 now, and their high officials exercise authority over them. He says to his disciples, not so with you. 
Instead, listen to what he says. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's there's ways that we think about becoming great. Those who Paul is contending with imagine that like their culture, they ascended into greatness. What Jesus is indicating here, Bill Hybels wrote a book, he talked about descending into greatness. That's what Jesus is describing. With respect to the kingdom, you don't ascend into grace, greatness by elevating yourself over. You descend into greatness by stooping to serve. And uh, this is what Jesus said. This is what Paul is asserting in this letter. It's also what Jesus Half-brother James has to say in his letter. I'm going to read from James 3, verses 13 through 18. Listen to what he says. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast And be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Then, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What James is indicating, the location or direction of a messenger's wisdom is evidenced by the posture of the messenger. If the messenger elevates himself above you, it indicates that his wisdom comes from below. Wisdom coming from below exerting that influence. So wisdom from below exerts somebody so that they become above you. By contrast, what would wisdom from above do? Wisdom from above would exert a downward influence. So the one who stoops to serve, they evidence in doing so that their wisdom is from above, not from below. What should you observe in those who channel wisdom from above? James talks about a few qualities or characteristics that you should be able to observe. They are peaceable. Peaceable means the opposite of combative and pugilistic. It's somebody who is not contentious 
or argumentative. Talks about gentle. The word gentle is somebody who is considerate and looks for common ground. They look for areas of agreement. Open to reason. Open-minded. Easily persuaded. Not hard to talk to. Full of mercy and good fruits. Somebody who is evidencing wisdom from above will be pliable in their manner and will express love in actions and in service. You will be able to see their devotion, not just what they say, but what they do. And it says they are impartial and sincere. Impartial is not judgmental. It's fair-minded. Sincere is they are non-hypocritical. How can you tell who speaks for God? One thing is to observe their manner. Do they elevate themselves to serve or do they descend to serve? Those who speak for God will descend into greatness. They will descend to serve. Um, how else can you tell who speaks for God? Not only observe their, their manner, but listen to their message. Here's what Paul writes. Such men are false apostles in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Earlier in the letter, Paul gave some insight into the nature of the messengers and their message. He gave some insight into the kind of things they either were or were not saying. In chapter 2, here's what he says at the end. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. And he's attacking those who would charge for their services. Now, Paul didn't, but these others really did, and they made a big show of it. Um, he, Paul charges them with peddling the word of God for, for profit. He says, on the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Listen to their, observe their manner, listen to their message. What Paul understands is those who speak for God on this side of the cross will be ministers of a new covenant. That is the message that God would give his representatives to proclaim. Um, if and then since the new covenant is powerful, here's a principle. If the message is powerful, the messenger doesn't need to be powerful. If you have a brilliant message, you don't need to be a brilliant messenger. In fact, if the messenger seems to need to be brilliant, that perhaps is an indication that the reason he feels he needs to be brilliant 
is that the message he's proclaiming is not as bright as it should be. And what Paul indicates is that the message of the new covenant is powerful. And as you make room to think about that covenant, to think about that message over and over and over as it gradually becomes clearer and clearer, the power of that message will transform you. Not because of the brilliance or power of the messenger, but because of the power of the message. If you continue to look at, try to understand the message of the new covenant, I want you to listen to me. As you try and attempt little by little to understand it, this message will change you slowly, bit by bit, deeply, at the level of the heart, permanently. It won't change your face for a little while. That's what the old covenant did. It'll change your heart eternally. It's interesting. When you don't have a powerful message, you need to be a powerful messenger, right? You need to kind of augment what's lacking in the message. Uh, the critical interface, as we think of clo- as we close now, the critical interface is not the influence of the messenger on the will of the hearer. The critical interface is not the influence of the messenger on the will of the hearer. It's the influence of the message on the will of the hearer. We're going to look at this verse, and I close with it. It's a verse we'll look at in a couple of weeks. Jesus taught Paul a very important lesson. Here's what he said to him, and with this I close. He says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, Paul writes, about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because of the strength of the message, You don't need to be a strong person to be changed if you have a strong message to change you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the power of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to the salvation of all who believe. I ask that we would continue as we make room for the message of reconciliation the message of the gospel, the message of the new covenant, that as it becomes clearer over the years, that the power of the message will transform us. Help us to, I guess not help us to, thank you for, for whatever the reason, being in a place where this has become something that we have looked at, not just for a week and then we go away from it, but we tend to look at it all the time, and I think that's as you would have it. But as we as we see your message more clearly, thanks that it'll change us. In Jesus' name, amen.
camera.